So 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says this. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking up the path, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, chanting, Go up, Baldy. Go up, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. First weird thing. And then two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. And there's another. It's getting weirder. Okay? If you've never heard this story, do you know it's in the Bible? This is in the Bible. This is, okay? From there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel, and then he returned to Samaria. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to be a Christian very long until you bump into someone who points to passages of scripture like this and says things like this. And maybe you've heard this from your friends, your coworkers, your brother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, who doesn't, who doesn't follow, who's an atheist or an agnostic. And they say things like this. If God of, if the God of the Bible is so loving, right? You know where I'm going, right? You've heard me. If the God of the Bible is so loving, then why did he let this happen? Right? You've heard this. If the God of the Bible is so loving, then why does it say this in the Bible? And this is one of these passages of scripture we come across. We're like, oh my goodness. Okay. I really like John 3.16. Um, I love Paul's epistles. I love the Gospels. What do we do with this passage of Scripture? And if you're someone who has placed your faith and trust in Jesus to rescue and restore you from the penalty of sin and have committed to increasingly submit all of life to him as your Lord of of your life, then, then really this is an excellent question for you to ask as well. Like, what does this... If God is a loving God, then why is this in the Bible? Like, that's actually a great question for you to ask too. And why is this a great question? Because being a Christian means believing that what one of the original 12 apostles, disciples of Jesus wrote to a letter to a young pastor he was mentoring as true. And what was that? Peter wrote this to a young protege called Timothy and he said, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The obvious question we will ask of every passage in this series is, what does this mean? That's the obvious question. But more specifically, what we're going to ask is, what does a passage about what appears to be an insecure prophet and the senseless mauling of 42 children mean? Like, what in the world does this mean? And, and, and besides that, how is it useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives? Like, how does, how, where do you get that out of this? If all scripture is useful. And so to answer, these questions and more, we have to start with understanding what is going on in the context of this passage of Scripture. And so I'm going to warn you, for those of you who love learning new things and diving into, this is going to be, you're like, yes, we're finally getting meat today. 
for those of you who are just like, you know what? I li- I, it's cool that I learned some new information, but just tell me what to do. Hang on. We're going to get there at the end, but this part is going to be diving in just a little bit. And so if you need something to keep you awake, I recommend you maybe take out a piece of paper or something to take notes with so you can stay along, okay? So with that said, I'm going to try to speak to both the person who loves the, the knowledge stuff and the person who wants the application stuff. Just know that in the next few moments here, we're going to spend a lot of stuff on the knowledge because we've got to get an understanding of what we're talking about. Because in the natural reading of the Old Testament, the average person would come to the book of 2 Kings by the way of Samuel, the books of Samuel, 1 Samuel, and 1 Kings. We have to talk about that for a second. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find God making a promise to a man by the name of David. This is the same David as David and Goliath, this, uh, you know, who eventually became King David, whom the Apostle Paul would call a man after what? God's own heart, right? So it's the same David. Second Samuel chapter 7, we find God making a promise to this David. And, and, uh, and, and what was that promise? Well, the promise was that one of David's descendants would be a messianic king that would establish God's kingdom and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. Now, we live on the other side of the, the cross. So we all know when I say messianic king, come to perform to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Who is that person? Jesus. We all know the answer to that question. We all know who that is. But as the Chronicles of First and Second Kings is being written out, it's important to realize that the book of First and Second Kings doesn't know that yet. And so the reason why First and Second Kings exists is because it exists to chronicle this really long line of kings that came after David because they believed what God said would be true. And so as they were chronicling, they were trying to capture the steps, the history, so to say, of how the messianic king who would establish his kingdom on earth would, would, would come about. And so they were taking all these records, right? Because it would happen. Is this the king? Every king that passed, it was, it was like... This, this is going to be it, right? Well, this is going to be it, right? But unfortunately, when you read First and Second Kings, as you read through it, you find that none of these kings lived up to be the promised messianic king. In fact, these kings do quite the opposite. Instead of establishing God's kingdom forever, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. And so within the first few chapters of First Kings, for example, we find... <laughs> King David, right, who is, you know, promised this great messianic blessing. And then within the first few chapters of First Kings, in, that, in fact, in, in, in chapter 2, we find David getting together with his son Solomon, who just become the new king. And, and, and First Kings chapter 1 is a real messy situation, how that even happens. You just have to read for, for yourself. But in Second Kings chapter 2, we find that Solomon has finally established himself as the king, and David is on his deathbed. And then we see David doing some really, honestly, he gives his son instructions for what many biblical scholars refer to as political assassinations that were intended to ensure this new kind of rule his son would have would go on as David believed it would. And so here we have like this, a guy who's going to be called a man after God's own heart, his last words 
are actually commands to tell his son to make sure to kill some people for the sake of political moves, if that makes sense, and if that makes any sense. So, right, so here we have, we have, it's already messed up. In other words, the book of Kings demonstrates that someone who is called the Lord's anointed could be susceptible to doing things that go against God's standards. Just because you're the Lord's anointed doesn't mean that you are not susceptible to doing things that aren't the, that, that are, that, to doing things that are, that, that God, um, doesn't approve of. And so the book of 1 Kings introduces us to the kings of Israel who fall short in living up to the standards of God's promise, king, uh, and Messiah, and also introduces us to second, the prophets. Okay, so the prophets. Now, these prophets play a crucial role in the history of Israel, which is why 17 books of the Old Testament are dedicated to telling the story of the major and minor prophet roles in the story of Israel, right? You know, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Adiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehemiah, Ben-Zedek, Zechariah, Malachi, right? So we all, those, those are the major minor prophets. So many of these books of the Old Testament are part of it because why? Because they play an important role. And just in case your definition of a prophet is more informed by the typical way pop culture portrays people who go through the title of prophet in the Bible, um, uh, who go by prophet, the, the, the idea of prophet in the Bible is, is someone who spoke on the behalf of God of Israel and played the role of covenant watchdogs, calling out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. And they were given the responsibility of reminding the people of Israel that they had been called by God to be a light to the nations by obeying the commands of the Torah, challenging the people of Israel to live a life of repentance and commitment in following Yahweh. Okay, so, you still with me? Good? Okay. So, with that said, a person who reads this passage of Scripture with the general knowledge of the context would understand the following. I'm going to break this down, right? So, I said all that just to summarize it this way. A person who has general knowledge of the context would understand this. One, the prophet spoke for God. The prophet spoke for God. This meant that many of the interactions recorded in the Old Testament between the people and the prophets of God were recorded interactions of how people reacted to God himself. This is important for you to understand. In the Old Testament, the way people responded to the prophets were actually the way people were responding to God himself. Okay, so that's really important for us to understand, because the prophets, what? Spoke for God. The second thing is this. Because the the prophets spoke for God, those who rejected the prophets (laughs) rejected God. This is why Jesus, if you ever wondered this, in in Luke chapter 13, uh, there's this prayer that Jesus gives, and he says this, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. What is Jesus' prayer about? He's saying, look, you who rejected the prophets were actually rejecting me. Okay, so this is his prayer, and his, his heart was rent over this reality. And so when we come upon a man named Elisha here in 2 Kings chapter 2, we understand that the disrespect shown to him was not simple as a bunch of kids bullying a bald-headed old man. The original audience to whom this was written would have understood this with clarity 
that these people were rejecting the God of Israel. So that's the first kind of like takeaway of what we need to understand about what is going on here. In fact, when you read the commentary of ancient Jewish rabbis on this passage of scripture, you'll find that it starkly contrasts how this passage is interpreted by those illiterate to ancient Hebrew language and culture with often agnostic or atheistic motivations. Many people who read this and go, see, 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 God of the Bible is messed up. <laughs> they, 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 they often, and I, it's not meant to be an insult to those who are not fluent in ancient Hebrew language or culture, but listen, I, for one, am neither fluent in ancient Hebrew, nor do I consider myself an expert in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew culture. But I live, you live, in a day and age where scholarly information is accessible to everyone. Like Historical scholarly information is accessible to everyone. And when you do an actual little bit of digging, it's easy to understand what is being communicated. And there are people out there who will just read the Bible and, and go like, ah, oh, see, it says right there in plain English. <laughs> and they're ignorant to the fact that this, well, it, English is a translation of something that happened long ago in a culture we don't understand. Uh, and so what do we need to understand? What are some things that we need to understand? Well, uh, I have a couple things that I think is, is helpful for you to understand. For one, uh, one Bible scholar writes this, from numerous examples where ages are specified in the Old Testament, we know that these boys were from 12 to 30 years old. I don't want to go, I could do a whole little class on the, on, on the word that's used for uh, boys. It's a, it's a Hebraic phrase that it's transliterated little boys or little, uh, sometimes children, okay? Um, but I'm not going to go into that. What you need to know is that word for boys is often, as this Bible scholar would say, it, it represents in that culture, people ages from 12 to 30 years old. And listen, if that feels like a stretch for you, you're like, well, it feels like a stretch to you. Um, how many of you remember when you were in high school and you thought like, you know, I, I'm older now, I'm older now. And then you like met someone from college and, and what do they, what do they call you? Kid. They said, like, yeah, what are you, uh, you know, what grade are you in? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a freshman, and then, a, you know, a senior in college looking, oh, you're just a kid, right? And then, and then, uh, right, so, the, you know, the kids in college would call the kids in high school kids. And, and, and the fact that I just called people in college kids reveals the fact that when you finally get to college, you meet people who have graduated, and then they look at those people and they call them what? Kids, right? And I know that there are some people, some of you, who, who have actually, to my face, have said, you're just a kid. <laughs> and, and I'm not offended by it. I get it. You got kids that are probably closer to me in age than I am to you in age. I get it. That's fine. That's, that's fine. But, but we understand this, right? We understand, even in our own language, we do have this stretch on this idea, like, what is a kid? Like, what is a kid? Well, a young person can be, and if you're really, really old, a kid can be someone in their 60s, right? And so we do, in our, while this might seem like a stretch as we're looking at this passage of scripture, it isn't a stretch in the reality of how we use language to define kids. And it's not only Bible scholars who understand that there are nuances in the original language that brings clarity to what this passage is actually communicating. 
Uh, we can look to Jewish scholars, Jewish scholars who are, who are not in, in any way people who are followers of Christ, but who have dedicated their lives to studying the Old, what we call the Old Testament, and who often come from a lineage of people who have ties to ancient Hebrew culture and language, right? So these are people who, they, their father was Jewish, their great-grandfather was Jewish, and their great-great-great-grandfather, they come from a line and they understand the culture, just like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm about... We, we joke about this all the time. I, I'm about the whitest Filipino you ever met, but I'm still more Filipino than you, right? <laughs> like, I, I, I know how to, I know how to swear in Filipino. Maybe I shouldn't say that. We'll remove that from the podcast. Um, right? But, you know, um, I, I know all the culture. I know all the foods, right? I know that when I meet, when you meet an old person who's, who's, uh, who's, who's, like elderly, and, and when you go up to them and you want to say hi to them, you're, you're supposed to grab their hand, and, and you go, and you take their hand and you put it on, their, on your forehead. Does anybody know that? Does you know that? Like some of you, right? But for the average person, they don't know that. But see, I know that. Why? Because I come from a lineage of people who understand that culture, even though maybe modern-day Filipinos don't get that. So you can look to some Jewish people, Jewish rabbis, and, and um, one of the most respected Jewish rabbis, uh, uh, Rabbi R- uh, Rashi, actually uh, in his commentary of this passage of scripture, wrote that uh, the word for small boys is actually a word that was used within Jewish culture to describe those, quote, void of mitzot. Uh, in, in, in other words, it's, it's people who are void of understanding, void of, uh, of, of uh, they were immature, okay? People who are immature, Another respected Jewish rabbi makes commentary on this passage to help us understand what the original audience of this literature, work of literature would have understood when he said, the Hebrew word little alludes to how small their faith was. Okay, so here you have little boys, boys being 13 to 30, right? So we have this age group. It's not, it's not these, we're not thinking of like Lord of the Flies group of 50 kids with war paint on them, calling people baldy, okay? <laughs> it's 13 to 30-ish, as we're looking at that. And little, little isn't describing their stature, it's not describing their age, but it's actually describing their faith or their posture to the reality that Elisha is a man sent by God. So are you still with me, by the way? Okay. Some of you are wondering where this is going or what in the world has to do with your everyday life. I get it. I'm going there. Just stick with me. So, let's recap real quick. We've established the following. The prophets spoke for God. Those who rejected the prophets rejected God. And number three, the group that harassed the prophet Elijah was a group of about 50 boys ranging from the age of 12 to 30 years old. Which, if any of you grew up in the inner city, what do we call that? A gang, right? And I don't know if you have ever faced a gang, but when a gang of people come at you harboring insults, because some people look at this like, oh, that was such an extreme response to people saying baldy. Okay, you stand in front of 50 people taunting you. That is not just making fun. There is something, there is a sense of real fear that is happening here. There's a real sense of, of, of accostation, so to say. And while there are a few more insights like these that Really, I don't have time to dive into. Uh, you need to know that one of the last things I, I do want to talk about is that there are two Hebrew verbs 
that are used in the Bible to describe someone giving a curse. Because we, we have to wrestle with this thing. Like, why does Elijah curse these young men, this group, this gang of, of, of boys? Why does he curse them? Well, uh, you need to know that some, while some scholars believe that uh, these two verbs, these two verbs, it's kalal and arar, these two Hebrew words, uh, that is often used for cursing. There's a couple more that they use, but these are the two major ones. Um, some scholars don't really see any difference between them. They, they're like, eh, it's like how we use the word cold and freezing. It's just a different word, same meaning. Um, there are others, and it's the majority, that often see them as different ways to describe similar yet very distinct things. For example, in the modern language, we understand that some historical things are not historic, right? That things that are historical are not historic because when we refer to something as his, as as who? I can't say the word. (laughs) Because when we refer to something as historic in modern terms, we understand it as something that happened in the past that had actually great significance, right? You know, while I, while the fact I had M&Ms, like peanut butter M&Ms last night, was historical, there was nothing historic about the fact that I ate peanut butter M&Ms last night. And maybe I shouldn't have admitted that because it's, they tried to hide it from me, but I found it. Found it. I love me some peanut M&Ms. So I, I, was, I was trying to... Anyways, so like, does that make sense? Right? It's historical. I had peanut butter M&Ms last night. But is there anything historic about that? Same kind of word, it, it's, but it sounds the same, but they have a very specific meanings. In fact, everything that's historic is historical, right? But not everything that's historical is historic. You see where I'm going with this. So in the original Hebrew language, the word for curse is literally translated this, kalal, which means, if you want to get super literal, it actually means to be slight, to be swift, trifling, be of little account, be light. You're like, oh, where in the world did they get the word curse for this? Well, this is the reason why we have language scholars and you look at context. Because even in our own language, we use certain words that mean a lot of different things, right? Like, you know, kids these days, like, I know what mid is. That means in the middle of something. But now kids today say, like, yo, that's mid. And I don't even know what that means. And it might just even change, right? Over, like, they use these, we all these different words. Remember, uh, I think when our age, we, like, we said, man, that's bad. And all, you know, all our grandparents are like, why would you say that's bad? Like, no, that, we mean that's good. Then why are you saying bad? Because, you know, bad is good, right? So we, we get this. I think we get this. But other examples of kalal, just, just so you can see, like, how is this else used in the Bible? Well, in Genesis 8.8, 8, it says this, Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. That word receded there is, guess what? The word what? Kalal. Receded. Okay. Second uh, Kings 3.18, it says this, This is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. In this passage of scripture, it's talking about uh, an act that God is going to do. And, and the prophet says, this is easy in the Lord's sight. And the phrase, is easy, is guess what? The word, kalal. Okay? All right. One more. One more example. Genesis 16.5. And I think this might tie everything together. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. 
or in some translations, I despised her. May the Lord judge between me and you. And that phrase, I became contemptible, I despised. That phrase is, guess what? The word kalau. Okay. So um, this past week, I had the opportunity to spend time with my dad, uh, whose first language is the Filipino language called Cebuano, which is different from the national Filipino language of Tagalog, for those who were wondering if you were or not. But anyways, uh, I, I was reminded as I was, you know, just having conversations with my dad and my stepmom, and um, we were having one conversation, and, and, and I remember they were like, you know, explaining something, and they were like, you know, like, oh, it's not, they, they said, you know, it's, it's some word in Tagal, in Cebuano, and I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. And they're like, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, it's a, how do you say, oh, I don't know, there's not a, a good word for it in English, and then they just try to describe it in these phrases. If you, if you speak more than one language, or if English is not your first language, you kind of get this. Or if you know people, like, there are just some words in another language that don't really have a direct, you, there's not a one-for-one equivalent. <laughs> you almost have to, like, tell a story in order to help people understand, or you have to use it in a certain setting, and that people are like, oh, okay, I get it. Well, actually, there isn't a word for that. It's just the thing. And this is also true of ancient Hebrew language. But just because there aren't words for direct word-for-word translation, there are ways to communicate meaning by understanding context. Taking this into account, I, I personally agree with the Bible scholars that view that Elijah's response to this gang who were taunting him was less of the kind of curse God gave to the servant. You remember in Genesis where, where, uh, where, where, uh, you know, God confronts Adam and Eve, and then he confronts the serpent, and then he says to the serpent, what? I curse you, which, guess what, is the word what? No, it's not kalal. It's the word arar. It's a different word. It's a different word. And so it's less than that, but it was a verbal discredit of these young men's lack of faith. It was a making light of. It was a contempt. It was more of like a, can't believe you guys. You know what? Whatever. Whatever. That's how I, I see it. I, I kind of agree with kind of the Bible scholars. So this wasn't like Elisha saying, Cursed you, and be it for your indiscretion bears in your face. Right? That isn't what he said. That's not, that, it was less of that. It was more of this like, you know what? <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. You know, like, you don't know. You you are so far from God, you don't even know it. And you're going to get what is due. You're going to get what is due. And what is important to note that this gang uh, was also from a city called Bethel, which was the chief center of pagan worship. Okay? And everyone who read this passage of scripture would have known that. And it makes sense then that they would try to run a true prophet of God out of town. Further, Elisha was not acting in a petty way in his response to his insulters, but he was following the law, as one commentator writes here. He says this, in the Deuteronomic doctrine, did I say, in the Deuteronomic, try to say that twice as fast, in the Deuteronomic doctrine of retributive justice, this was a requirement against anyone mocking a prophet, an act which was the equivalent of belittling God himself. Okay, and this comes back to the, remember the point that I said. The prophet speaks for God, and so rejecting the prophet means what? Rejecting God. Okay, so this, the original readers of this text would have got that. Okay, 
In other words, these representatives of pagan idolatry are not only mocking Elijah, but they are actually mocking God himself. They're using their words in ways that reveal their heart. And therefore, the attack of the bears was less of a result of Elisha's cursing them and more of a result of the natural consequences of their rebellion against God. Okay. So we've explained the passage of Scripture. Okay. I've got six minutes. And I want to help you understand What in the world do we do with this? I think there are a few ways this can speak truth into our lives, but one of the most important things we can take away from this passage of Scripture is that the words we use can reflect the posture of our hearts towards God. If there's anything that we should take from this, is that the words we use reflect the posture of our heart towards God. If you've ever made good on the commitment to read through the Bible, it doesn't take very long to know that the Bible has a lot to say about the importance of our words. Here's just a few. Ephesians 4, 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Matthew 12, 34. Jesus says this, Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you're evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Or older translations that some of you have memorized or that I've memorized is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then again in Matthew 12, verse 36, 37, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that on that day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word. They speak. I know, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I am hit with absolute, (laughs) like, conviction. God didn't say, Jesus didn't say, take account for every, you know, vile. Like, I could deal with that. Like, for every evil, I could deal with that. Like, I don't know. As far as I know, I haven't been evil. But careless? Yeah, totally. I'm a dude. (laughs) We say careless things all the time. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, this may seem like an application point that needs no reminding for some of you. Um, Maybe you don't need the reminder that your words reveal where your heart is because Your heart towards God is always good, and your words are always good. I I will concede to the fact that there just might be one of you out there that has been perfect, at least since you came to knowledge and faith in Jesus. There might. I don't know. But I'm I'm betting on the fact that uh, you're probably more like me. Um. And you know what? Here's what I hate <laughs> about teaching, about being a pastor and teaching the Bible is God often requires that the, vet, that the venue through which he speaks his truth 
speak it from a place of um, transparency and experience and conviction and not just like, you know, oh, here's what the Bible says. And I can't tell you how many times I chose this passage months ago. And it's a passage about the words you use. And just yesterday, like this, this, just yesterday, I found myself in a situation where the words that I used revealed that my heart was not in a proper place with the Lord. I, I'm just going to admit that to all of you. I'm not going to go into detail. Uh, maybe come to a small group and I can give you more detail, but. Like, have you ever been there where and here's how I knew it because and thank God for his spirit and I think this is the this is this is why I think it's absolutely hopeless to have to not have Christ because in the moment where I was sinning against Another, God allowed, God allowed his truth and his conviction to come so strongly. And by God's grace, my heart was soft and I didn't try to defend myself. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you catch yourself saying something that's hurtful and wrong, and then you realize that you're wrong. You try to qualify. It. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. But, you know, if you really didn't do that, I really wouldn't have gone so far. Right? You know, we all do that kind of thing. Right? But I think, I think, and then, and I didn't tell the people that I was in this reality with that like, oh, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to be preaching this passage on your words. Mostly because I was ashamed. Because I'm like, oh, God. Are you really doing this to me right now? <laughs> like, am I teaching? Am I am I teaching this because I need to know this, and maybe no one else except for me? Or are you are you teaching this to me so that people can know that? Um, even those who are considered the Lord's anointed could do things that the Lord does not anoint, for sure. And so yesterday, as I was confronted with my reality of falling short of God's standard, I was immediately brought to the passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 12, which says this, live in harmony with one another, right? Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Because I don't know about you, but not when... when this is just me. I'm, I'm just, now I'm talking me. I'm just talking me. A lot of times when I find myself saying things that are hurtful or using words that are, are, are not pleasing to God, it comes from a place where I think I'm right. I think I'm wise. I have permission to say what I'm going to say. I've thought this through and I'm biblical. 
I'm upholding what Jesus died for. Or whatever. Crazy kind of stuff. But I forget that God doesn't call us to be the most right people. He calls us to be the most humble people. Wise not in our estimation, but wise by the Spirit of God. And so I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but if you're in a season of your life where you're finding that the words you speak are causing more harm than good, then maybe it's time to repent before God and ask Him to give you a renewed heart. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then, go reconcile with the one you've sinned against. Go say, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong. So, <laughs> we went from funny video to serious study to some application to me telling a serious story. And and I actually, I'm not going to apologize about it. I hope some of you feel super guilty. <laughs> like, I hope some of you realize that your words are really important and that your words are a litmus test to what is actually happening in your heart. And God wants your heart. And the good news is your words don't have to stay in the trajectory that they're moving. Because God can change your heart. He can do it. He can do it. He will do it. And dare I say, he is doing it. Even now. As some of you are feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit to say, return to me. Repent. Ask me. Cry out like the psalmist. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then go and reconcile. Like, make it right. Don't be the kind of person to say, oh, well, it's, 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 it's cool between me and God. Do the really, really hard thing and make it right with the person that you've sinned against. So, what are the words you have been using recently reveal about your heart towards God? That's the question. And whether we realize it or not, here's the point. The words we speak matter because our words have the power to reveal our heart toward God.